This is 105.9 The Region. There are so many ways of communicating these days, but nothing seems to beat the one-on-one. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Welcome to In Conversation. This show is, in my view, upfront, up close, and very personal. Bob Ray, a man of many talents, the politician, Premier of Ontario from 1990 to 95, interim leader of the federal Liberal Party, 2011 to 2013, elected 11 times to provincial and federal parliaments over 33 years. The scholar, Honours BA Modern History, Rhodes Scholar at Oxford, graduated U of T Faculty of Law in 77, became a QC in 84. The lawyer, pre-politics, private practice, senior counsel specializing in Indigenous law and constitutional issues, post-politics, teacher of law and public policy. The architect, helmed the restructuring of the Canadian Red Cross and the TSO, chairman of the board, the Royal Conservatory of Music. The Advocate wrote Lessons to be Learned on the Air India Bombing, penned Ontario a leader in learning about the province's higher education system. The Negotiator served as a chief negotiator for the nine First Nations of the Mattawa Tribal Council in Northern Ontario. The humanitarian, including being named Canada's special envoy on humanitarian and refugee issues. And Bob Ray today, ambassador, permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations. But there's so much more to him than meets the eye. Passionate piano man, the product of a showbiz family, husband of a powerfully proactive writer and activist, and mental health mentor. Bob Ray joins us now in conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Bob. Great to be with you again. And with you, Anne. It's wonderful to talk to you. And you as well. And, you know, I understand that you you come from a showbiz family. Can you elaborate? <laughs> well, my, my, uh, my father and my Uncle Jackie and my Aunt Grace uh, were uh, child performers uh, during the 20s and 30s. Um, and uh, they were called the little, the three little rays of sunshine. Uh, and, uh, you know, my dad was on stage performing as a kid, uh, from the time he was uh, six or seven years old. Uh, Jackie was even younger when he started. And, 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 uh, my aunt, uh, very sadly died relatively young. She was a choreographer, but, uh, she died many, many years ago, uh, but she was a dancer and a choreographer and, and my uncle Jackie stayed in show business. And my dad always maintained a strong interest in musicals and music and and performing, but he became a he became a diplomat. He mm. he went straight, if you like. He he decided to go uh, go <laughs> become uh, uh, during the war broke out. He he joined the foreign service and and uh, was involved in intelligence issues uh, over that period. And then and then he. Um, Worked in uh, France and and in the occupied uh, in Algeria after it was liberated and free France and all that stuff, and then he and then he tra- traveled around the world as a as a diplomat. So uh, that was the, the background. And you know, a lot of young men and women follow in their parents' footsteps. In your case, did you feel that those were big shoes to fill if you were going to follow in his footsteps, whether it was showbiz or the divergent into the diplomatic corps? <laughs> Well, I mean, I think the fact is is that uh, I, I, you know, when I was when I was much younger, coming out of university, um, I, I didn't, I chose not to to go into, you know, the, the government or into foreign service. Um, I maintained a lot of my father's interests and interest in music and and also 
uh, interest in, in public service in a broader sense, but I went into politics and I was just out of law school. So that, that was, that was my life. Um, and when the prime minister asked me a few years ago to do some work on the Rohingya refugee crisis, I got very involved in that. And then he asked me to come down here to New York. So I feel that, you know, as somebody said to me, he said, you, you usually when you enter the family business, you do so when you're younger. He said he chosen to wait till the very end, and I said, "Yeah, it's probably true." Taking a more a more um, lengthy route to get there, let's say. And you know, I've always noticed this about you. I've I've watched you for all of your career and through all of mine, and I know that you you don't always go the route that is expected. So let's go back to 1990, and I also recall I was working for City TV at that point, uh, hosting a show called Breakfast Television. You were my guest on live on BT uh, prior to the election. We even held an event, an election night coverage at City, and it was called It's In The Bag. And that was because so many people in the polls were telling us that David Peterson was going to win by a landslide. That was not the case. You were the victor, and a lot of people were caught really, really by surprise. What what happened? What went in your favor during that election in 1990? I I don't think we'll ever really know. I mean, it it was. I mean, I can tell you, Anne, before the election, um, Arlene and I had a long chat about you know what I might or might not do. You may remember that my late, my brother had died the year before she'd lost her parents a few years before that. And I'd run twice for the, for the premiership, if you like, uh, leading the party, uh, and said, look, this is our last run. Let's just uh, have some fun. Um, and, uh, I'll do my best to get, uh, to get uh, the most votes we possibly can and, uh, to get the most seats we possibly can. And let's, let's just go for it. So I had a kind of free and, and, and relatively easygoing uh, attitude towards the election. That may have helped. Um, I didn't feel like I had anything to prove. I, I knew that I, if, if I lost, it would be my last run, so that, that would be fine. And uh, I was young enough to be able to think about doing other things at that point. Um, uh, so I, it just sort of started that way. I think it was it was an early call. Um, it was uh, a recession in Ontario that was really starting to to dig its to dig its way into people's lives. There was a lot of anxiety out there, and I think people knew they, they knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think there was just a suddenly there was just a much more positive response, and I could feel it from the very first days of the campaign. And then things began to happen, and uh, our own polling showed uh, that we were doing very well. Um, but there was no guarantee, you know, the last week of an election, anything could happen. And we weren't, we weren't, uh, taking any polls in the last week of the campaign. So we were, we, you know, we were a little on edge on election day, but we thought we had a chance, uh, but to win a majority was a surprise as much for, for us as it was for anybody else. And what, what did you think the next morning? I mean, I always want to know when the victor uh, wakes up the next morning after a massive uh, election victory like you had in 1990, what was the first thing you did the morning after the night before? Well, we, look, we went, I went home after the, uh, the election night. Our kids were uh, asleep in bed. We, uh, they were little then, uh, um, and uh, we all woke up and had a celebratory breakfast, <laughs> you know, with the three three young girls. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And um, and then, of course, around, I guess around 10 or 10.30, I got a call from 
Peter Barnes, who was the Secretary of the Cabinet, and uh, he said, Premier, I think you'd better come into the office this afternoon. He called me Premier, and, and I said, well, that's new, because I'm not Premier yet. He said, yeah, but, you know, it's you got to you got to think that you are. <laughs> so, so I went into the office on uh, Friday afternoon, um, and uh, it was it was a challenging conversation, not just with him, but with uh, the officials from the Department of Finance who who said that. Uh, let's just say they said the world is not exactly as you might have expected it to be, um, because there had been a, a, a an economic statement at the end of August that showed that books were balanced, and um, when I when I was shown the books, they were not in balance. So uh, we knew at that point that uh, the economy was going to be the critical issue uh, during my time in government. And it, uh, that remained the case. And so how did you manage that? That was not in your wheelhouse necessarily. When I look back at your, at your educational history, uh, you as the scholar, I don't think that finance was necessarily, uh, right up the, at the top of the list of the things that you felt comfortable doing. So how did you manage that? And every leader, by the way, and we know this, says that they, and every party that wins, says that we've inherited this problem and that problem from the outgoing party. But in your case, it was true. (laughs) Yeah, in our case, it was true. I think everybody recognized it was true. And I, 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 and I, I mean, my view was you just you just roll up your sleeves and get on with it. I mean, we we had um, we you know we developed a a, a team of people uh, working with the public service and with others to to make this uh, to uppermost in uh, everyone's mind, including my own. Um, and frankly, it's called on the job training. I mean, you 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 don't uh, you you don't necessarily prepare for these things. I mean, I don't think that Mr. Trudeau. Uh, prepared for COVID COVID nineteen. I mean, uh, just the reality that you you don't know what's going to hit you. You have to be you have to be ready to 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 take it on. I think it would be fair to say that the first year was rough for me. I mean, at a personal level, I mean, I was I was um, you know challenged by the situation, and, and not only did we have the recession, we had a brand new cabinet, a brand new government, a lot of people who were. Had even less experience than I did, and and we had a constitutional crisis. Uh, you know, Quebec, uh, the Meech Lake had foundered. Uh, the Quebec had indicated that it was never going to negotiate again. Uh, the support for separatism was up at 60% in Quebec. Uh, I mean, it was a very serious situation from that point of view. So, yeah, I mean, there was a lot on my plate, and yeah. and um, I learned. I learned actually. <laughs> my, a lot of help, a lot of advice. The best advice I had was from my doctor, who noticed that you know that I that I was my blood pressure was up and other other issues, and he said, uh, you know, you you're gonna have to you're gonna have to live with this, Bob. You're gonna have to, you know, take it in time and take take your take your pace and do it in in good in good measure. And it was good advice, and I did, and and I and I really had wonderful support from Arlene and. Uh, from the girls, I mean, they didn't necessarily know it at the time, but the fact that their life was still going on was very normal. They were in school and doing their thing and coming back with school projects and everything. It, it kind of focused me and grounded me, and um, and I think that helped me to to get through. Uh, you know, what was it? Well, it's well, question. It was a it was a challenge. And to think that this was your last kick at the can, you know, that's the the irony of all of this. And and you ended up 
premier for five years until 1995. One thing, whenever I mention your name and, and whenever I'm about to interview someone, I, I float the name to, to all of my friends and colleagues and family and, and even strangers. Everyone knows who you are. Everyone has tremendous respect for you. But most people also said, oh, yeah, Ray Days. <laughs> right. Well, I used to joke about that. And in fact, the funny thing is, is that I said to people, you know, no other premier had days named after. You know, I mean, it's, it's for all of the, uh, you know, all of the other premiers that in the past. And I, you know, I, I joke about it. But I mean, I think, you know, frankly, we had a tough, some tough decisions to make. And I think, you know, you said, you know, I do the things that are not expected. I don't think anybody, I never expected when I became premier that I would have to make decisions to say, we're, we're going to have to ask people to take a day off without pay. We're going to protect their jobs. But the only way we can you know, really guarantee those jobs is if is if we have that have that program in place. And it was it met with a very mixed reception. But in but in reality, I think a lot of people, even people who didn't like it, uh, understood that it was um, of all the alternatives, it was probably the least damaging one. And even today, up right, like up till now, I have people stopping me in the airport. And I have somebody come up to me and say, you know, Mr. Ray. I, I bet you no one ever tells you this. I said, what's that? They said, we really like the Ray Days. I said, no, actually, people, some people say that. <laughs> Don't be embarrassed. You're not the only person. Um, but it was a tough choice. I, and I accept the fact that we were asking people, including MP, MPPs and, and me and everybody, we're asking people to make a sacrifice, and it was uh, it was a hard sell. Now let's continue the path of you doing things that are unexpected. So you became the interim leader of the federal Liberal Party. So you went from orange to red. Why? Well, it was an evolution. Uh, it didn't happen quickly. I think started with the realities of power, my realities in government. I I, I really felt, and I, I still say to this day, that being in office, being the premier. Uh, at a time and a moment of difficult recession um, really was a series of, of life lessons for me about government, about choices. And I, and I wrote about that in, in, in the books that I wrote after, um, in my book From Protest to Power, um, The Three Questions, you know, two books that really reflected a lot on the changes that were going on in my own life, but also going on around the world. Uh, and I felt more and more that the new democratic party was not changing as I was. And, you know, when I left, uh, in 96, there were, um, a great many people who in the party, I think in in the NDP breathed a sigh of relief and said, well, now we can go back to what we've always been. And I said, well, that's not going to work. I mean, you, you can't go back to what you, where you've always been because the world is changing too fast. Um, you know, my father had worked with uh, liberal and conservative governments as a diplomat, and uh, he worked with Mr. Pearson very closely. Um, and so, you know, the the trip to the Liberal Party was not a long journey for me. I'd I'd even been a young liberal in 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 early university days, um, and uh, my brother was very actively involved in the Liberal Party. Um, Mr. Kretchen remained a very close friend of of our families. Um, uh, through mainly through my brother, who was who worked for him and who was his campaign manager for several several elections, and it kind of just evolved. Mr. Kretchen used to phone me up and say, "When are you coming over?" And I said, "It's look, it's a very difficult thing to do. Uh, it's not easy to <laughs> not easy to leave to leave a party." Um, but eventually, I I I felt uh, that that 
the reality was that there, there was room in the Liberal Party for for my ideas, and and uh, I I ran for leader uh, unsuccessfully, uh, as it turned out, and not surprisingly, given the fact that I hadn't been a member for a long time, um, and and then decided that because I'd run for leader, I really had an obligation to run for Parliament. So I I did that out of uh, Toronto Centre and um, was elected, and. Um, and then eventually, when we had a very bad defeat in 2011, uh, people turned to me and I said, fine, I'm happy to be the interim leader. And then um, after Mr. Trudeau won, um, I decided that I wanted to do something quite different. So I went off and worked on Indigenous issues for five years and really uh, enjoyed that opportunity. It was uh, very meaningful for me at that stage in my life. And I have to ask you, based on that uh, and your experience with Indigenous issues, law, that sort of thing, what were your thoughts when it was made public, the first set of mass graves that were discovered recently? It was so many lives lost, and and so many people knew about this, but so many did not. What What were your thoughts, what were your feelings when this became public? Well, I, I don't. I didn't feel surprised. I mean, I I knew. I mean, I I felt it was simply confirmation of what uh, Judge Sinclair had 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 told us all in uh, in his report uh, on uh, of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I mean, it was very evident from all of the stories and and uh, personal accounts and and very moving testimony of uh, families uh, across the country um, that there are young kids and, and, and young young people uh, in graveyards across the country because uh, because of their health situation and because of uh, many, many other factors that uh, uh, that led to the, the, the very high rate of mortality in um, in residential schools. Um, as a as a student of, of the subject, I, I knew about it. Uh, there's a famous report by uh, a Dr. Bryce that came out in, in uh, 1913. I used to assign that book to my students to say this is what a, a, a public servant knew about the residential schools in 1913. So I wasn't, I wasn't shocked in the way some people were. Cause, but I recognize fully from my time, my experience in public life, that you know people can read something and see a number and they say, oh my goodness. But it's only when they actually see uh, the physical evidence that they say, "Oh, okay, now I now I understand better what this is about." And I think it was a moment of truth for Canadians, of saying, "Yeah, this is this is real. This is not just a number. These are real people. These are yeah. real situations." Most definitely. And as an advocate for so many and for so many causes, I have to ask you: You wrote "Lessons to Be Learned," and it was on the Air India bombing. Might we transfer that "Lessons to Be Learned"? when it comes to indigenous issues. Totally. Totally. I mean, I, I do think that, I mean, one of my approaches to public policy, I mean, you can see it in everything that I've, that I've written, a great deal of what I talk about is it's not, you know, have you done something right or wrong or what mistakes have you made? It's, it's what are we learning from this? What are, we, what are we gathering? What are we understanding about ourselves that we didn't know before? How do we apply it to our future behavior? Uh, how do we change? Uh, that's that's what really interests me. And I, you know, in all the work I'm doing here at the UN, it's it's not just about attacking it, you know, criticizing another country. It's about 
first of all, recognizing that nobody goes into the United Nations with, you know, with clean hands. Everybody has issues on their table. We, we have this one. It's a, very, it's a very public one. And I can assure you that the countries that are not appreciative of Canada's positions on human rights will, will, will throw it right back at us and say, well, what about, what about this? And I say, yeah, you're right. We, we have a lot of explaining to do and a lot of understanding to do. That doesn't stop us from trying to figure out how to apply those lessons to, uh, to the world today. I mean, in fact, that it strengthens our, uh, our commitments to do, to do that. Coming up next in conversation, Bob Ray's personal journey with depression. This is In Conversation with Ann Romer. Is there someone you want to learn more about? Drop us a line. Info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer will be right back on 1059 The Region. Welcome back to In Conversation with Ann Romer on 1059 The Region. We are back in conversation with Bob Ray. Bob, are you comfortable talking about your struggles with depression? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm very comfortable talking about it. I mean, for a long time, um, I, you know, when my parents were alive, they, they kept saying, oh, please, you know, <laughs> please don't talk about that yeah. more than you have to. Yeah. And, I, and I said, no, I want to. I want to talk about it because I, I want to explain to people that there are um, difficult moments in life uh, that can take you completely by surprise, and that um, mental uh, illness is is an illness. It's it, it it it's not like just being sad or having a you know being upset about something. Um, I I felt for a period of time when I was I guess in my twenty three, twenty four, um, twenty five. I, I I felt that I was not myself, um, and. Um, I can remember visiting my grandmother, who was my mother's mother, who was English, and who lived in London. And I, I was a student, uh, finished my degree in 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 political philosophy at Oxford, and was and was starting, you know, to a doctorate. And she, I went to see her, and she said uh, we were chatting, and then she said, "Bobby, you know, can I say something to you?" I said, "Yes." She says, "What's wrong? You're not yourself." And I started crying. Mm. And I said, I, Grant, I don't know what it is. I'm just, I just don't, I don't know what's right, what what I should be doing. I don't, I, I don't feel myself. I feel cut off from people. I, I feel anxious. I, I can't go into meetings. I can't speak to large, you know, I, don't, I used to speak to students and large numbers of people and stuff. And I said, I can't do it anymore. And, 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 uh, and, you know, it, 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 it was a, it would just hit me. Um, and with the help of, of friends and family, and, and, and I wrote my parents about it and, and um, uh, spoke to them. In those days, it was just on the phone, brief calls and letters and stuff. And um, they, were, they were supportive. They, they were baffled by it. I mean, my father says, I don't understand it. You've never had a moment of doubt <laughs> on anything in your life, and now this happens. I said, yeah, it's 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 a it's a shock. It's a shock to my system. I'm not I'm not sure what you know what's up. Um, and then I did go into therapy, um, and the, the therapist was um, was really good, a good listener, and and uh, very observant about you know what I was, what he was hearing from me. Um, and one of the things he encouraged me to do was to say, well, you know, start doing stuff, like do stuff, like. Yeah. And I started working in a housing and legal aid center in London, 
which was really at the beginning was just sort of therapy. And I became more comfortable doing it. And I got some of my, you know, my mojo back. I got some of my self-confidence back and, and uh, my humor back. And because I lost all that stuff. I'd lost my humor. I'd lost a lot of things which have always been very, very important to me. Now when people say to me, you know, well, well you know, what do I do? I have a son. You know, will you talk to my son or will you talk to anybody? Will you give speeches? I said, yes, I will. I do it. And I, and I have... I have sessions here with my staff. I said, you know, the most important thing is your mental health and, and understanding, uh, you know, what's going on. And, and we had to deal with a lot of these issues during COVID. I've seen a lot of serious challenges for families during COVID in my own office, in, my, in our shop here in New York. It's a, it's a real challenge for people to get through the isolation and, and the sense of disconnect, which then begins to trigger other things that, you know, have been buried inside. And I think that's one of the things that therapy helped me to do was to understand that you know, there are triggers. Um, I've had a couple of other, you know, I wouldn't say episodes, but I did when my brother died um, in 1989, I was leader of the, of the NDP at the time. And, and I said to my colleagues, I, I, I worry about going into another, another trough. And, and I, I, um, I must say I was very supported by people. And I did also have some therapy at that time. Um, with a terrific therapist who had, I'd known at the University of Toronto, who, who was the director of student programs at U of T, a guy called Don McCullough was his name, a great, very, very thoughtful guy. And he, that was a much shorter kind of intervention because he just said, look, you've, 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 you've come to grips with some of the demons you've had. You've, you've got to, you've got to, uh, recognize that you've received a huge blow. You know, you were close to your brother. I was, I was a bone marrow donor to my brother and, and he said, that's, that's the whole experience. You've got to accept the fact that you're going to be low for a while. And, and I did take, uh, take the summer off and, and, and as much as I could. And then my colleagues were very understanding of that and, and, uh, and then came back to fight the election. So yeah. it was another way in which I just felt freed up. I mean, I didn't feel self-conscious about it. I find it interesting that you did not take medication for your depression. You believed in talk treatment, and you even said that the change must begin within ourselves. So all of that has evolved in you. And again, you're taking that path that is uncharted and unexpected. So today, today is another day. As we open our eyes each and every day, we say, all right, what is this day going to bring? What does a typical day bring for you today as ambassador and permanent representative of Canada to the United Nations? Again, unexpected, in my view. (laughs) Yeah, well, I wasn't expecting to call. When the PM called me to say, (laughs) can you come and have lunch with me in Ottawa? I wasn't expecting it either. Um, I mean, I'd done other jobs for him part-time, which I was happy to do. Um, and, uh, I, I was teaching at the university, uh, in my law practice, uh, you know, very, very happy in, in those ways that he said, look, you know, I think this is something you, you, you've still got a lot to contribute and you've got so much experience. It would be really beneficial to us if, if you would go. And I said, well, okay. So I, I, I did. And, uh, I'm, I'm very glad that I have because again, it's allowed me to, I mean, even therapeutically, it's been good because, uh, you know, it, it, paying tribute, being able to pay tribute in in my own way to my dad, and to to my parents, um, and 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 also uh, doing a job that I really believe in. And it starts early in the morning. I mean, it starts with usually with a Zoom call at eight or eight thirty, um, 
most of my day is in the office, but it's not all in the office. Some of it's at the UN itself. Um, what can I say? Lots of meetings, uh, but really trying to focus on, and, and here, you, you know, it's such a busy place. You have to kind of decide, well, what am I going to do? And I've decided I'm going to focus on, first of all, on COVID and it's, 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 it's how it's being experienced around the world and, and what we can do to, to do a better job in, in helping countries to cope with it and helping ourselves to cope with it. Um, climate change, which is all around us and is, again, a super big issue. Um, conflicts where, where we, we do, I think, as Canadians, have a, have a sense of the importance of figuring out how to, how to resolve uh, conflicts. And of course, uh, the values that we stand for, human rights and democracy and pluralism and, and ideas of, of, of tolerance, these are ideas that are very much under attack. So we, we need to you know, keep on reinforcing their, their, uh, their importance and, and speaking up about them. Uh, and that keeps me busy. I you know, usually don't finish work until 9 or 10 at night. So it's a, it's a busy, busy life, but it's, uh, it's fascinating. And I got to thank you for taking a slice of time from your very busy day, your very busy life, your very fruitful and optimistic life for spending time with us, to spend time with us in conversation. Bob Ray, I thank you very much and all the best to you and Arlene, to your daughters, to your grandchildren. Thank you for being you. Well, thank you, Anne. And if I may say so, please. Give a shout out to your dad for me. I'm very fond of him and I've <laughs> always enjoyed his company. And uh, I know my uncle did too. And uh, uh, when Jackie, you know, his final, his final act in show business was to create a band called the Spit, Spitfire oh, Band, which great. Uh, I think General <laughs> Romer enjoyed very much. So it was fun. Very much so. And I've enjoyed this so much. Thank you, Bob Ray, for being with us in conversation. Thanks, Ann. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. Follow In Conversation with Ann Romer on Twitter at 1059 The Region. This is 1059 The Region.